Thank you so much, Paul. It's the relativity of this call that I have to, <laughs> I have to make compensation for. <laughs> Let's pray together. In Mark chapter 10, there's a story about a man named Barnabas, Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus sorry. Um, he's on the road, he's a blind man, he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many scolded him to get him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, have courage, get up, he's calling you. And he threw off his cloak, jumped up, came to Jesus, and then Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do? Let's take a few seconds uh, and called out to Jesus, the son of David. And he is asking you, and imagine him in the crowd and trying to elbow you out of the way, and, but uh, you just want to say, Jesus, please listen to this. And what is deepest and heaviest on your heart this morning? And I'm going to give just a few seconds here to let you express that to the Lord Jesus. What is heaviest on your heart? Father, I know there's a lot of people in our congregation who, have, who are carrying burdens that sometimes seem too heavy to bear, and all we can do is cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. And uh, we want to give you our, our uh, full attention, and, and knowing that you pay attention to us. And so, Father, we express these things to you, that you, we ask you to, that you, uh, you hear us. And Father, I just pray that for the week ahead, that we don't hesitate, that when we have something that's burdening our hearts and is heavy on our minds and, and something that we just can't shake, uh, grief that we just can't seem to get over, or fear that we just can't seem to conquer, or sin that we just can't seem to give up, that we will let you know about it and never forget that we see you everywhere and that you are present in us. <clears throat> So, Father, that is our prayer this morning. For all those in our brothers and sisters here and that are not here with us this morning, that they can uh, express their heartfelt burdens to you and that you hear us. We thank you for that. And, Father, on the same token, we pray that we pay attention to those who are calling out to you around us, that we pay attention to people who are hurting and who are carrying weight that seems too heavy to bear and when they're called out that we pay attention that we get out of ourselves just long enough that we can have a word of encouragement or just a silent prayer or just a time of holding them before the throne uh, without words <clears throat> so father that is our prayer this morning and our prayer is that we look into your word that we uh, have a better understanding of who you are and what you have done for us and we ask this in jesus name amen I don't know about y'all, but I had trouble getting in my car this morning. 
I go out in the car and it's frozen. I mean, I had to pull the door. I, don't, I didn't lock it, but I had trouble pulling the door open to, just to get in. And I was talking with Don this morning. He said he couldn't even unlock his car. And uh, he ended up unlocking the hatch and had to crawl through the back to the front seat. I would have given money to see that. But, uh, <laughs> but I wish I could have seen it. But uh, glad you all made it here and uh, hope the roads weren't too icy uh, getting here. Uh, to me, one of the most ironic uh, names or titles that have given to humanity is the biological classification homo, homo sapien, sapien, homo sapien, and uh, because out of the Latin that means wise man, and I'm looking at our history and our, our um, uh, present and going, what an ironic title to give to us because I doesn't, sometimes doesn't seem like we're all that wise. Um, it seems like we kind of make a mess of things, and I just think that's a little bit, hmm, wise man, huh? I don't know if that fits us or not. I guess there are some times that people do come across with some wise things, but for the most part, you think, I don't know, it doesn't seem, our history doesn't seem to bear that out. Uh, Sue came across a, um, a comedian named uh, uh, um, Ashley Usselton, I think that's how you pronounce her last name, and uh, she kind of just tells corny jokes, but she also has this alter ego where she kind of sits in a chair with a hoodie on, and she's supposed to be this wise sage. And uh, she just makes these really deep observations and raises these really deep questions and, and just kind of, this is supposed to be this wise person. I just thought I would share a few with you uh, this morning. I think, I think I can. Are we... There we go. Here's one. Uh, we are devolving as human species. Written language started off as hieroglyphs, and then it became more complex. And now it's hieroglyphs again. <laughs> Would a candle shop smell nice if it burned down? <laughs> Clapping is just hitting yourself a lot because you like something. When one vegan gets into an argument with another vegan, is it still a beef? We work our whole life so that we can be lazy. Yes. <laughs> amen. I hear an amen there. Crabs crawl on the bottom of the ocean floor. So when they look up and see the fish swimming, are they like birds to them? Sleep is just the human equivalent of turning something off and on again. And that I really feel. Mammals have hair and produce milk, so a coconut must be a mammal. The brain named itself. That's one of my favorites, actually. When you look into the sky, you actually are staring into the abyss, and gravity is the only thing that keeps you from falling into it. And you are a background extra in someone else's life. There really is some wisdom into some of those, and, uh, and, but we do like to pretend that we are wise, and we like to maybe think we are this wise man or wise human, wise humanity. And I tried to present the idea that, that wisdom God's wisdom is this theme that's running through the book of Colossians. He starts off that in, in Paul's prayer. He's saying he prays for them that they will be full of all spiritual understanding and wisdom. And he carries that line all the way through the book. And then he goes on and kind of expounds on that uh, throughout, the, throughout the book. And he tells us that, um, that it, there is this mystery, that God is in this program, this humanizing program for us. He's, he's recreating the soul. We talked about that last week. 
that the soul is the most important part of it. It's the thing that correlates us and, co- and coordinates all of our, our thoughts, our emotions, and our feelings, and we need to take care of it, and it is fractured, and yet God is now in this program of healing that fractured soul. And part of that is this wisdom that he calls a mystery, and he says the mystery is Christ in us. And then he goes on to expand on that. This is what this, this wisdom is all about, this, this wisdom. And Paul gives us in, in verse 8 that Paul started, uh, Paul probably asked me if that was the right place because Bibles divide the paragraphs in different spots, and, and like mine, divided it back in verse 6. But I think verse 8 kind of starts a new theme, and it starts with a warning. He says, watch out. Watch out that you don't get fooled by by any of these hollow trickery. Watch out that nobody uses philosophy and hollow trickery to take you captive. That these are in line with human tradition and with the elements of the world, not the king. In him you see all the fullness measure of divinity has taken up in bodily residence. What's more, you are fulfilled in him since he is the head of all rule and authority. So he starts off going, watch out. Don't get tricked by this. Don't get, don't get drawn in with this useless philosophy and hollow trickery. He is not saying that all learning and philosophy is bad and you shouldn't pay attention to it, okay? He does, he, he does say we should learn. We continue to learn. But like we saw last week, I think what Paul's getting at is that we see, we look through the lens of Christ at everything. We look through Jesus at everything. And then we're going to go further on in chapter 3 where he'll say you want to see Christ in everything. And that's what he means. He's not saying that don't stop, you know, just stop learning stuff. He's saying see Christ in everything and look through, see everything through the lens of Christ. But he's saying watch out for this hollow trickery, this philosophy. They may may take you captive. They may ensnare you. And he's not just talking about, he's not coming to to the Colossians and say here's here's an alternative religion. He's not giving them this this, uh, comparative religion class that you compare them all. And he says, well, here's a better one. And I think you ought to try it on for size and see if you like it. Or he's not saying that this is a special way of praying. Pray like this, and if you pray like this, I think you will feel better. He's not doing that. He is saying just don't get caught up and don't get ensnared by this, by these philosophies. Who is he talking about? Is he just talking about general philosophy in in terms of whatever the world says? Well, we need to look at a little bit of history before I think we understand who Paul is talking about here. Okay? Um, Bad history creates bad theology, all right? And I think when we look at the scriptures, we need to know some good history of what Paul is addressing here. And so if you go back there, back in the, in the first century, there was all a plethora of gods and idols to worship. And the most recent one was the emperor himself. He was the son of, if he was called the son of God, it's because the father before him was God, is now deified. And the Romans required all people to pray and worship these gods, especially the emperor. Okay? All people had to participate in the celebration. They all had to participate in the processions, when there was a birthday, when there was a, a military victory. Everybody had to participate except the Jews. Why not the Jews? Well, because they said, we are not going to buy, we're not going to pray to any other god. We're not going to pray to anyone else. And the Romans, being very practical people, they said, okay. You don't have to, because they knew that they would die before they would do that. And they said, okay, you don't have to do that, but we ask you just to pray to your God for our emperor. And they go, okay, we can do that. We can do that. 
So what happens is that the, this, in a place like Colossia or Laodicea or Ephesus, some of these other cities, what happens is people would say, hey, we've got to do all this stuff. These activities are dehumanizing. They require temple prostitution and, and sacrifices and all these kind of things, but the Jews don't have to participate. And they found that very attractive. They liked the idea that they only worshipped one God. And so they would kind of start to want to to find out more about it. And they kind of want to become part of this Jewish family. And they were called God-fearers. They feared God. And then Jesus, this group of people who follow this rabbi, Jesus comes along. And they start start attracted to that. And then it caused all kinds of confusion. Well, then who's a Jew and who's not a Jew? Who's, who's, who's part of the family of Abraham and who's not part of the family of Abraham? And the Jews come along and said, you know what? If you really want to be part of the family of Abraham, we have some regular th- things that are very important. The temple in Jerusalem is very important. That's where God manifests his presence. Now, that's a long way away, so we built these synagogues that we can come together and worship. And then he says, then they say, and, and the Torah is very important. We obey the law. That means you got to not eat certain things. you got to keep the Sabbath. And you got to have all your men, all the males, circumcised. And they go, that's what, that's what it's going to be. That's what it's going to take if you really want to be a member of the family of Abraham. You have to do these things. And I think this is who Paul is focusing in on. These other Jews who are coming along and saying, you have to do these things if you really want to be part of the family of Abraham. And Paul comes along, and I think he's a little bit fearful of what happened in Galatia. If you remember in Galatia, he told the Galatians, you you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you to follow all these things? And Paul is saying, no, something as new has happened. God has sent his son, the Messiah, and he's introducing something new. And you leave the old things behind. And the Jews respond, well, you know, if he was a real Jewish Messiah, he certainly wouldn't have been crucified. And Paul goes on, he's going to explain why that was necessary. And he said, this is something new. You need to leave it behind. This was human tradition. The law is the same as human tradition. It is an old element. But this is something new. And then he makes that astonishing claim that is probably one of the most incredible claims in the New Testament. In him, you see, all the full measure of the divinity has taken up bodily residence in him. The entire triune God had been manifested in the bodily, solid, physical representation of Jesus of Nazareth. He says there's no need to pay homage to any other lesser being. All other lords, all other people who call and say you have to pray to them, those are all idols. The fullness of the deity dwells in Jesus Christ. All other lords are idols. And then he takes it a step further. What's more, you are fulfilled in him since he's the head of all rule and authority. It's not enough to say, God has, fulfilled, has filled this human being. He has manifested himself in the, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Now Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, fills you. And that is an amazing claim. That the deity fills Christ, and now Christ fills us. He is the ruler. There are no rivals. Jesus Christ has no rivals. 
there isn't a hierarchy here. We have Jesus here, then you maybe have some other supernatural beings or other things. There is no hierarchy. It is Jesus or nothing. There is no rival. This is not some course in comparative religion. And he's saying you are not governed by the whims and desires of the rich and the powerful. You are governed by Jesus. And he has started this program of humanization. He says you submit to no other master but him. And he goes, because God has started this program and it is God's intention. He has filled the Jesus and Jesus fills us. It is God's intentions to flood every man, every woman, every child, the streets with love, richness, and power. That's what his plan is. That's what he's doing. He is filling every one of us with love and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is an astonishing claim. And he said this has happened already. And he says those things that the, that the, the groups are trying to, trying to tell you about, he says those are just signs that are pointing to the reality which is in Jesus Christ. All of those things are signs. So why do I think it's all Jews? Here, why do I think he's zeroing in on the Judaism, the Judaizers here? One thing he talks about as he goes on through the chapter and, and down into chapter 3, he's always using these symbols that are particular to Judaism. Circumcision, dietary laws, this, uh, this involvement of angels in worship, which was really popular around the first century. All these things are characteristics of the Judaizers. So I think he's focusing in on them, and he's saying that it's just not... That's just going backwards. He also has this play on words here that is incredibly clever. Back in verse 8, he says, you will be held captive. Okay? That is a strange word. In fact, I think, I, I think, it, uh, maybe, I think it may be the only occurrence in the New Testament where this particular word is used. And it's, uh, it's, it's pronounced sula gogon. And he says, they will take you sula gogon. They will take you captive. Now, if you take the third letter and turn it upside down, that lambda becomes a noon. And it becomes sunagogon, which is synagogue. And so I think what he's getting at here, he says, don't be sunagogon, don't be captive by the sunagogon, the, the, the synagogue. Don't go backwards. Don't go backwards. Now, I, I have some friends who, in fact, he was a former student. Uh, he was pastoring a church. He, he unfortunately passed away really unexpectedly, very young. But he pastored a church, a very successful church down in Puebla. And, uh, and the last few years before he passed away, he started steering the church back towards Judaism. And they started practicing Jewish rituals and practices and stuff. Now, if that, those symbolism there helps you have a better relationship with Christ, helps you understand Jesus a little bit better, Fine. But if you think you're going to get a deeper relationship or deeper knowledge or a deeper salvation doing these things, Paul is saying, no, don't go back there. Don't go back there. Don't be ensnared. Don't be captive by the synagogue. All those things were great. They were signs that, parted, that, that pointed to the reality. And Paul is saying, now you have the reality. And that reality is that Jesus is enough we possess all we need in jesus christ he that is enough through belonging to him the crucified risen savior that 
is enough. He fills us, nothing else. He's the one who fills us. So he goes on and he says, you are already God's people. He said, in him, indeed, you were circumcised with a special and new type of circumcision. It isn't something that the human hands can do. It's the king's version of circumcision, and it happens when you put off, quote, the body of flesh. He says, you're already circumcised because he circumcised your heart. The physical circumcision was just a sign pointing to the reality. It's a heart thing. It's a heart change. And I, I, when he talks about it's not something done with human hands, what I think is really clever here, because if you look at the Old Testament, the contrast and the criticism of idol worship, he's always talking about the gods who were made with human hands. Well, now he's turning that argument back on them and saying, okay, this circumcision was just with human hands, but what God is doing is through the heart. God is changing your heart. It's a different kind of circumcision. You were excluded from the family of Abraham because of lack of circumcision. And Paul says, no, you are now part of, part of Abraham's family. And he ties it to baptism. He says, when you were buried with him in baptism and indeed also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. This is where new life is found. This is where we find it. I don't think this is the, really the only place where baptism and circumcision are close together. And I think what is going on here is he's saying that this is an initiation rite. He's not saying that baptism is a magic trick, that it just replaces circumcision. He is saying baptism is this outward sign of an inward reality. It's an outward sign of what God has done in your heart. And you are declaring yourself now I am a member of Abraham's family through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, through the circumcision of the heart. That makes me a member of God's family. And when he talks about the body of flesh falling away, I, I kind of wonder if he's talking about the fleshly family. That he's saying you are now initiated into God's family and you're leaving your fleshly family behind. It could be sinful nature could be all kinds of things but i'm just thinking here that maybe that's what he's getting at because for us in the west we kind of think oh baptism's not a big deal but in a lot of cultures back then and now that when someone gets baptized that person is leaving their family and the family often disowns that person saying that that person is now a christ follower instead of a Hindu or a Muslim or whatever. And sometimes these families even have funerals for those children who get baptized. And Paul is saying, you have left that family and you have a new family. And God has raised them from the dead. And he says, you are already alive. You're already God's people. You're already alive Used to be God's people would say, you have to do this, this. If you're not circumcised, if you're not doing this, then you are dead. Well, Paul says the same thing. He says basically the same thing in verse 13. In the same way, though you were dead in legal offenses and in uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with Jesus, forgiving us all our offenses. 
Paul agrees with every Jew, and every Jew would agree with Paul, that before the Torah, before when you were in uncircumcised, you were dead. The difference here is Paul offers the remedy to that. And the remedy is Christ. God made alive in a new world. He's not really, it's not that we can escape this old world right now. We live in this tension of already not yet. But he has already made us alive. It is a present tense verb. And not only that, we are also already forgiven. So he has already made us his people. He has already made us alive. And he has already forgiven us. There's nothing we need to add to that. The Jews would totally agree with that, but Paul gives the remedy. He doesn't give this sort of full theology of what happens on the cross. His point is that he takes the written, handwritten document, the handwritten accusations, and it's nailed to the cross, he says. And it is wiped clean. It is it's like taking a sponge, and he has, he has expunged it. Everything that might be listed on there. And I think it may be a reference, when he says it is nailed to the cross, I think it may be a reference to when Pilate nailed on the cross the king of the Jews. Because when he nailed, on the cross, when he nailed that document on the cross, the king of the Jews, that means the king represents every one of us. We, in Christ, die and are resurrected. Because the king represents all of us. That's what kings do. They stand in our place. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. That he took on our sin and we took on his righteousness as our representative. That God himself is the source of this new life and all that handwriting on that handwritten document has been nailed. There is no need to go back and get circumcised. There's no need to have the Torah stand in those accusations against us. There's no need to have to make the trip to Jerusalem for the temple because now heaven and earth has come together in us. It is pointless. It is pointless to do those things. To say those, it's pointless to think that the Torah has anything to say against us because it has been nailed to the cross. So anything lacking that you feel like is lacking is filled with Jesus and Jesus alone. He is enough. He is enough to make us belong to Abraham's family. Nothing else. Verse 15 now ties it all together. It started off, he started off talking about uh, that don't, don't pay attention to those elemental, spirit, elemental spirits of the world, not according to the king. Verse 10, he is head over all rulers and authority. And now in verse 15, he says, he stripped the rulers and authorities of their armor and displayed them contemptuously to public view, celebrating his triumph over them in him. When a Roman soldier or when a Roman emperor, Roman general had a military victory, how would they know about it? We didn't have internet, didn't have news, didn't have the radio. How'd they know about it? They would take all the soldiers of the defeated army and march them to the town, march them through Rome. They would strip them down, and they would become slaves. The king would be in the back, and they would execute him. 
this is what the leaders of Jerusalem, of Israel, and Rome thought they were doing to Jesus. You have Rome and Israel, the leaders of Rome and Israel, the greatest, the best government the world has ever seen up to that point. You have Israel, the best religion that the world has ever seen up to that point. And those leaders conspired to say that Jesus was a blasphemer and a rebel, and he was neither a blasphemer or a rebel. And they executed him because of that, thinking that they had triumphed over him. And Paul's saying, no, the other way around. He said, they were the usurpers. It's Jesus who has the authority and the rule over the planet. They are the usurpers of the authority. They are the blasphemers. They are the rebels. And Jesus turns it all on his head. He now becomes triumph over them. The greatest weapon that um, tyrants have is death. And that was the weapon they used against Jesus. And Jesus overcomes it. It looks like they were triumphed over Jesus, but he triumphed over them and made contempt of them. When Pilate signed King of the Jews and nailed it on the cross, basically signed his own death warrant. Jesus was the victory. Jesus is the one who celebrates the triumph. And he says it breaks this, all the mold. There is this new family. The old world is gone. This is something new. All the old world with its behavior, with all the world with its distinctions of race and class and sex, all those things have been reconciled under Christ. I don't think Paul is saying that government is always evil because he obviously doesn't. He doesn't in Romans that it is part of God's plan to maintain kind of order in the world. What he is saying, though, is that when we start worshiping it, it becomes an idol. It's just like the moon and the stars and the skies and, and, the, and the sun. Those are great part of God's creation, and they're perfectly great things, but people fell in the trap of worshiping them and they became idols. The same thing with government or any, any other force or power. Economics, when we start worshiping it, it becomes an idol. But he has defeated the, rele the, the rebels. So how do we apply this? Okay, I agree with you. Jesus is all we need. That's wonderful. I don't need anything else. Well, let me just give you five takeaways that I get from this. First of all, we do not live by what is possessed, but what is promised. We don't live by what is possessed, but what is promised. It's the authorities, it's the leaders, it's the, it's the, the rich and the powerful, that they're the ones who want to live by what's possessed, the, the right now. What I have right now, this is what's most important. The Pharisees were the same way with Jesus. They were more concerned about protecting their turf, them and their allies in Jerusalem and in Rome both. They want to protect their turf. They want to protect what is. Crucifixion, resurrection people, we also live by what is promised. We take seriously what is, but we live by what is promised, not by what is. God is leading us somewhere good and positive. 
He is leading us, in spite of all the other crucifixions that we see, He is leading somewhere good and positive. If you look at the verbs in this passage, they are all something that God has done and that God is continuing to do. It is, they are all in the present. God is doing this. It is a program of humanizing. It's not something that we just wait for the pie in the sky. It is something that he's doing right now. And he is leading us to somewhere good and positive. There is no pedestal of perfect purity to stand on. So quit trying to find one. Quit trying to climb on it. Circumcision doesn't matter. The dietary laws don't matter. The Torah that has the accusations doesn't matter. There is no pedestal of perfect purity to stand on. Faith at its core is accepting that you are accepted. That's what faith is. If you want to get down to brass tacks, it's just accepting that you are accepted. That's faith. There's no pedestal of purity to climb on. It is our insecurity that keeps requiring the necessary sacrifices. If we keep thinking we've got to do this, we've got to do, do other things that earn God's favor, it's also just a reflection of our insecurities. If we think we have to do all these things that the shepherd of the valley will accept you and you can be one of us, it's all our insecurities. They're the ones that it's our insecurities that require this point of view, this, this that we need to do more. The divine love argument or question from God's perspective, that's been settled. It's been settled from his point of view. The only people who have problems with it is us. That's already been settled. It's just our insecurities. And fifth, emptying alone can allow for fullness. Philippians 2 says that basically what Colossians says, that he was the, the full embodiment of the, of the triune God, and yet he emptied himself. And I'm wondering, is this a pattern? Is this a pattern for us? That we empty ourselves, that we are so saturated with the worries and the, and the obsessions and the, the way we appear to people. And he says, is it time that we just empty that as Christ emptied himself so that we can be full of his grace? I think there are probably two major forces that empty us. Great love and great suffering. I think those are the two things that empty us and prepare us to receive the fullness of Christ. Deep love or deep suffering. Great love or great suffering. Those two things. I wish great suffering wasn't one of them, and I've said this before, I wish it wasn't one of them, but I'm afraid it is. But great love also empties us that we can receive the fullness of Christ. It is the great love and the great suffering that keeps us in that Trinitarian flow. I have this idea that the Trinity exists with this constant eternal flow of love. And it's great love and great suffering that we can step into that flow. Not earning anything, just stepping in. My early years as a professing Christian was um, saturated with end-of-world preaching and teaching. That the end of the world is just right around the corner. In fact, sometimes they even set dates. It's in the 80s. In the 70s, it was Hal Lindsey, uh, The Late Great Planet Earth, the book The Late Great Planet Earth, that also became a movie. 
Hal Lindsey uh, graduated from the same seminary I did. Um, that was all about putting the fear into our lives and that the coming was just going to be in the next generation, next 10 or 15 years. And then the 80s became the Left Behind series and a movie <laughs> with that. And even now, we'll still hear apocalyptic preachers all the time. The, the end of the world is just around the corner. It's just around the corner. Everybody, it's, you know, get ready. The doom is coming. And it may be true. I don't know. How do I know something Jesus didn't know? Okay? It may be true. But there's a couple of things that bother me about this, hearing this. The blood moon theory, I think, was the most recent one I saw, that there was a blood moon theory that was thinking that this is, okay, this is a sign that it's just, you know, like next week. And there's a couple of things that bother me about this. One is they seem to enjoy preaching the gloom. They seem to enjoy the coming disaster. Finally, those woke people are going to get what they deserve. You know. The other thing that bothers me, the other thing that bothers me is that it sounds like they've given up. They're giving up. It's like, I'm done. We're just going to circle the wagons, wait for Jesus to come with all the fire, and uh, get us evacuated. So I'm giving up. It almost feels like they've lost their faith or lost their nerve or lost their hope or something. But when I look at this passage, these are, verbs are all in the present. He is doing all these things now. If we just open our eyes and see that God changes lives, he still changes lives. He still brings forgiveness. He still brings life. He still makes us part of the family. He is doing this now. And we get to participate. We get to live it out. Now. And if he comes this afternoon, praise the Lord. But if he doesn't, I'm still going to live it out. Because God still changes lives. This whole passage is really very simple. The cross is about abandonment, abandoning the old, and it's about embracing the new. That's what it's all about. Abandon the old, embrace the new. That's what Paul's calling us to do. Abandon the old. Abandon the effort to guarantee our existence or our security. Abandon the effort to control other people around us. Abandon the effort to possess it all. Abandon the old and embrace the new. Embrace the generous forgiveness that God offers. Embrace the gift of life and security that he freely gives. Embrace the joy of receiving the fullness of the mystery inside of us. Abandon the old. Embrace the new. He is still working. He is still doing it. And we get to be a part. Father, we thank you so much for the promises. Father, forgive us when we kind of get too nostalgic and want to hold on to the old. Father, we want to be bearers and proclaimers of the new. Empower us to do so. In the name of Jesus, amen.